Thank you so much, Amy, and good morning. Welcome to the Leewood campus. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson, and as Randy mentioned, this is a big day at Christ Community uh, because our Brookside campus is opening, so people are worshiping at Brookside this morning, and uh, that's very, very exciting. Well, this week has been an amazing week for me. Uh, in many ways, uh, one of the <laughs> realities of my week is I found myself on a very early morning flight to Chicago, and uh, very seldom, uh, especially early in the morning, uh, do I grab what's in front of me in the pocket of the seat in front of me. But I was flying on a United flight, and I picked up, I don't know what got into me, the Sky Mall magazine. <laughs> you know, I don't usually spend a lot of time here. And uh, I started picking through this amazing collection. I thought I'd share a little bit with you this morning. <laughs> First of all, I ran into the healthier stress relief. There's this um, helmet. It looks like a Star Wars sort of helmet. It's the Soma Wave helmet. And uh, I don't know if you can see that, but it's just hilarious, uh, actually. But it says that you can put this on, and you can have a stress-free, worry-free life. And uh, it says, only for $79.95. I'm like, whoa, I think I need that. I didn't even know this existed, let alone I needed it. So I found myself kind of entering in the twilight zone of lustful longing for these things. <laughs> and uh, then I, I made my way. I actually went through this whole thing. I'm, I, I, maybe you're into this. I, I, I hope I'm not stepping on someone's toes. But I ran into uh, the iGrow. This is uh, another helmet-looking thing. It's uh, kind of Star Wars-y or Star Trek-y. It's a helmet that looks actually really strange. It has an iPod in it. I don't know exactly how that works, but it's called the iGrow, and it guarantees in a few weeks healthier hair, better looking hair. Uh, and if you don't have hair, I think that's part of the add-on too, and it's only $6.95. There's another little gadget right underneath it. It's called Whiten Your Teeth, Zap Your Zits with a push of a button. And I'm like, I need all these things. Can you believe that? I found myself, you know, looking through this magazine instead of reading my Bible at six in the morning um, and thinking, goodness gracious, I really need this. I have a stress-free life for $79.95. I have better looking hair, less gray or whatever for $6.95 and a zit-free, blemish-free, white, smiley teeth. Hey, that's life. And I found myself sort of lost in this twilight zone of desire. I didn't even know it existed, let alone I needed it. And what it struck me is I was looking at this thing, and I probably looked at it for 15 minutes, maybe 20. <laughs> I was in this other zone, and I was realizing that stuff, you know, stuff that we want sometimes can want us. And sometimes the more stuff we have, the more it has us. And this morning, as we continue our series through Jesus' very startling statements, Jesus addresses this. In our fall series, if you were last week, we are encountering these startling statements of Jesus. Boy, do we got a doozy today. And if you were here last week, you know that Jesus addresses some of the toughest things. And this morning, he is going to address this area of stuff and things and how it can take over our life. And he is going to tell us something very important that none of us must miss this morning. Whether we are young, older, whether we are newer to the faith, whether we've been in church all our life, and that, that is this. That good things 
can become bad things when they become ultimate things in our life. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn this morning to Mark's gospel. It goes Matthew, then Mark. Mark chapter 10. Now, let's remember Mark is a brilliant writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, and his literary arrangement in these 16 chapters pivot right in the center, and it pivots on two questions that we are looking at in this series. The two big burning questions of Mark and the gospel writers are, who is Jesus, and what does it mean to follow him? Last week in Mark chapter 8, as Jesus is walking on the road, On his way to Jerusalem, he drops a bombshell on his disciples. He gives a startling statement as he confronts the idol of self. And he says to those who would follow him that they need to deny their self, take up their cross, and follow him. Wow. What a startling statement. But now as we come to chapter 10, Jesus is not done. And Mark presents him again on the road again. I'm thinking of Whale and Willie and the boys, you know, on the road again. Here he is. He's back to the cross. He's heading to Jerusalem, not for a coronation, but a gruesome crucifixion. And Mark zooms his literary lens in on a story that is truly stunning. As Jesus confronts not just the idol of self, but the idol of wealth and family. I'd like you to arrange your thoughts with me how Mark arranges this this wonderful story. The way Mark arranges it in a threefold progression as he brushes this canvas of literary beauty, the literary canvas flows on three brushstrokes. First, we are going to see a startling interruption. It's sudden. Then we're going to see an extended startling conversation and then a sobering reminder. So if you're taking notes this morning, if you want to arrange the habitual framework of your mind and the flow, this is where Mark goes. It's a a sudden interruption, a startling conversation, and a sober reminder. Let's begin where Mark begins. He begins the story with this sudden interruption. Then let me zoom in on verse 17. Mark says, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, and he's going up to Jerusalem, a man runs up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark simply tells us this guy runs up, doesn't give him his name, uh, his name. Mark is more interested in his heart, but we'll discover that more later. Matthew, part of the Fab Four we talked about, Matthew And Luke, John doesn't cover this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give a biographical framework to this guy. They don't give us his name, but we do know that he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. So he was well-placed in the community. The idea is this young man had it all from a cultural perspective. He was young, amazing character, we'll see. Probably good-looking. You know, sometimes people are disgusting they have it all, right? They have good looks, good brains, good charm, good position, good money. This guy had it all. So that's important for us to grasp. At least, we tend to think he has it all. And the question, does he really, begins to surface. Now, you will notice something important. In verse 17, he addresses Jesus, Rabbi Jesus. Jesus is a very famous traveling rabbi now, having left the carpentry shop. And everybody knows about Jesus. He's like a rock star. He addresses, he kneels before Jesus in a very 
sense of teachability and humility and recognizing this rabbi is extraordinary. But he addresses him unusually with this idea of good teacher. Do you see that in your text? It's in verse 18, actually, after 17. And Jesus' response is sort of, at first glance, kind of funny. Not humorous, but rather strange. Because Jesus responds, why do you call me good teacher? Because good is referred to in Genesis as God's prerogative. And you will notice that Jesus is not distancing himself from deity. I want everyone to grasp that in verse 18. Rather, he is saying to this young man, do you know what you are saying and the implications of it? And this is important for us to grasp because he will speak some very hard words to this young man. Now, let's look at verse 17 again. Uh, This young man asked Rabbi Jesus a common question that he knew the answer. Because in Deuteronomy, the answer to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is to love God with all my being and to obey his commandments. So the question is a question, but underneath it lies another question. The question on his lips is not the same question as his heart. And Jesus addresses that question. You'll notice that he suggests, this young ruler, that even though he has been a a very observant Jewish young man, that he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man, in his heart, is asking, I'm still lacking something, Jesus. What am I lacking? There is a sense of lacking and emptiness in my life. I have done all this stuff, and there's still something lacking. But notice also in the question, he has the presumption that he can do something to inherit eternal life, as if he can do something to inherit anything. So at the first point, Jesus affirms his longing that he's missing something, but he challenges his misguided idea that he can do anything to inherit eternal life. So there's much going on in this initial interruption. Now let's press into the startling conversation. The conversation is really broken into two parts, but I'm going to focus first on the first part. It's an extended conversation, first with the rich young ruler and then with the disciples, okay? But let's look at the conversation he has with the rich young ruler. In verses 18 through 22, there is an amazing conversation that is startling. And what you will notice is that Jesus, um, he will address some commandments, several of commandments. But Jesus doesn't list all ten. And this is very important in the narrative. Why does Jesus choose the commandments that are tied to family loyalty and property? We're going to grasp that in just a moment. Jesus doesn't give him all ten. Why? Now, let's look at his response, the young man's response. Jesus lays out six of the commandments, and then he says, here's the response. Verse 20 through 22, if you have your Bible open. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, notice, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had vast wealth or great possessions. 
Now, enter into this text with me. It's an extraordinary narrative. Jesus doesn't challenge this young man's observance of the commandments. This is going to be important later. Don't miss that. Rather, he just hop skips over that. <laughs> and he addresses at heart level what's going on. I imagine he's kneeling before Rabbi Jesus, and Jesus says, Get up. He looks this boy, this young man, in his, into his eyes with love, the love of God, extraordinary love and compassion. He looks him in the eye and he says, Yeah, you still lack one thing. Notice the text says he loved him. I love that part. Every time I read this text, you know, you might think I'm, you might not want to listen to me after telling you that I read the Sky Mall instead of the Bible at six in the morning. Okay, so, uh, you know, be gracious to me this morning, but when I read this text, I think of the 1990s movie, City Slickers. That's where I go. If you saw the movie, it's really a kind of a silly movie. It's Billy Crystal, one of my favorite comedy guys. And you remember the story of midlife guys' crisis, they're crisis after crisis, and they leave the city, and they try to find what life's all about, and they go to this dude ranch. And they're trying to figure out what life's all about. They know they've missed it. They're lacking something. There's longing. And so they run in to this old, crusty, leathery guy named Curly. And if you've seen the movie, you know Curly says, guys, it's the one thing. And he sticks up his finger. Not this finger. <laughs> one finger. And this is what I think Jesus is doing. He has this young man he loves so much looking him straight in the eye. He's, he's already up from his knees. That's how I read this text. It's, it's one thing. You're lacking the one thing. What is the one thing? He says to this young man, your supreme allegiance is out of whack. Your supreme allegiance in life is your family and your family wealth. And you've got to deal with it. Because it needs to be me, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Messiah. He says, then, if you get this one thing right, you will have the deepest longings of your heart. This is what you're lacking. And then, I imagine Jesus saying, in your heart of hearts, my dear friend, you long for a life of precious treasure rather than endless possessions. What is going on here culturally? We're so distanced in our location, linguistically, geographically, and culturally. This has taken place over 2,000 years ago. Kenneth Bailey, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, particularly in, in um, cultural expressions of the, of the New Testament, captures the hard-hitting truth that Jesus is telling him. Jesus loves him enough to communicate what he needs to hear, but it is very hard to hear. And Kenneth Bailey says this. Listen carefully. If you walk into this context in its geographical and cultural location, this is what's going on between the interchange between the young man and Jesus. He's got it perfectly. He says this. The two, listen carefully, the two unassailable loyalties 
that any Middle Easterner in the first century understood is that it is required and considered more important than life itself are your family and your village home. When Jesus puts both of these in one list, then demands a loyalty that supersedes them both, he is requiring that which is truly impossible to the Middle Easterner given the pressures of his culture. Jesus gives him some hard truth. And he says to him basically, young man whom I love, your heart is compromised because your life is tethered to a hard idol of family and wealth. And unless you deal with that and place me as your ultimate Lord, sovereign that I would be your greatest allegiance and affection, you will miss out. You have a lot to live with, and you have nothing to live for. Young man, you are financially secure, rich beyond imagination, but you are spiritually impoverished because an idol controls your heart. Heart idols in our life, in your life, in my life, attach themselves to our soul, often not because we love things too little. It is because we love someone or things too much. I think, apart from the passion narrative, that in Mark's gospel, Verse 22, if you have your Bible open, is one of the saddest moments in Jesus' life. Mark alludes to this. Jesus and him are eyeball to eyeball. He looks into his heart and soul and he appeals to this young man. And notice what Mark says in verse 22. Disheartened, this young man walks away. I want to suggest to you that tears are streaming down both of their faces. The disciples are watching this in complete dumbfounded awe. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus was going to the cross for this person. And he was walking away. And you know what? I don't see any indication in the text that Jesus said, oh, oh, come back. Pretty please, pretty please, come follow me. He just walks away. Mark uses a very powerful word. Different translations, if you have the ESV or the NIV, will translate this word a bit differently. The ESV says disheartened. It's a good translation. I like the NIV better here. It's more vivid, less precise, but more vivid in the sense of explaining The NIV translates this text, this man's face fell. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, verse 22, hits it. He says, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. And then Eugene Peterson says this, he was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. 
And without saying more, Mark says everything. And all you hear are the pitter-patter of his feet as he walks away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we are given is a picture of a heart tenaciously held onto by the idol of family and wealth. It is as when you read this text, you've been in this situation, the air is just sucked out of the room. And the astute reader will realize that they are encountering an extraordinary irony. Because this young man has said, I have followed all the commandments since I'm a youth, and yet he did not even follow number one, that thou shalt have no gods before me. He didn't get past first base. Because his God was his family loyalty and his wealth. Not God, not Christ, not his Messiah. Do you feel the irony? His family ties, his wealth portfolio were his true God. That's where his allegiance and affection lie. You know how I find myself wondering, did the young man sort of turn back just a little bit to look? We do know Jesus didn't say, please, please, please. He let him go. So where are you this morning? Where am I this morning? Where's your supreme allegiance, your greatest affection, your greatest loyalty? Will you embrace Jesus as your supreme allegiance, your highest affection, your undivided loyalty? Or will you walk away from him? All of us, in hearing his words, have that important choice in stewardship. See, Jesus' words are not so much about what you have, it's what has you. What has me? So let's just take a moment. What do you truly love the most? Be honest. What do you think about? What do you daydream about? What do you talk about? Where do your priorities lie? What are you devastated about when it's taken away? Pastor Tim Keller does a wonderful job here, I think, in highlighting the idol of wealth particularly, and money. And he says this, there are three flags, and I have this on the slide for you because I thought they were so powerful in my own life this week. Three flags to know money isn't just money to you. When it crosses the line, first, you can't give large amounts of it away. Secondly, you get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You're driven by fear rather than faith. Three, it bothers you when you see people have worked, who have more than you, especially if they've not worked as hard as you. Understand this. Don't misunderstand this text. This text is taught so pervertedly wrong. Jesus didn't ask this guy to give up what he had because it was bad. He asked this particular guy to give it up because the good things he had had him. And because good things become bad things when they are ultimate in our life. Jesus said it. You cannot serve God and mammon. Discipleship is an either-or proposition, not a both-and. And Jesus makes it so clear. And Jesus may love, does love you. He may love you so much. 
He may have to save you from something or someone you love just too much. And open up your hands if you were unwilling to do that. Can you imagine the disciples watching this? (laughs) Mark now shifts the scene. (laughs) They are dumbfounded. I imagine them with their mouths literally dropping to their sandals. They are just freaking out. That's what the text says. Why? Look at verses 23 through 26. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, they're standing right there, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, I love this, it's a very gentle word, tender word. Children or students, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? See, this rich young man was a poster boy for all they had aspired to as young Jewish men. To them, wealth was a slam dunk sign of God's favor, not a long shot obstacle to eternal life. They had never thought of this before, that wealth could be a, 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 a problem. They had no category, not only for a crucified Messiah, but for a wealthy person who didn't have eternal life because they were a sign of God's favor. So Jesus just completely turns their world upside down. And they are just longing for traction. I mean, they're in midair without traction. (laughs) And if that's not crazy, then Jesus pulls this crazy picture of a camel in the eye of a needle. Is that strange? How many of you remember, you don't have to raise your hand since this might, maybe you remember a certain Saturday Night Live skit. Maybe we watch Saturday Night Live. It's usually too late for me. Quite amazing comedy, actually. And there was a, there was a comedy several years ago that was focused on this verse 25. Do you know that? In Saturday Night Live. And the story is really actually hilarious. It's the story of this Mr. Hayward who made millions and billions of dollars. And so he creates this foundation. And let me read. The, it's so good. Let me say this. It's called the Hayward Foundation for the Development of a Way to Make it Easy for a Camel to Pass Through the Eye of a Needle. (laughs) And there's a picture of these white coat laboratory dudes, these scientists, all concocting all this apparatus to try to figure out how to bring a camel through a needle. I know it's gross. And they, first of all, take a horse, they try to throw him, you know, through a drinking straw. No luck. That's the idea. (laughs) Then they try to pre a camel. No luck. Then they build larger needles and smaller camels, you know, genetic engineering, and no luck. And they, at the end, they just want to pull this statement out of the Bible, and the skit ends classically. This is the Hayward Foundation, working really hard to get Mr. Hayward into heaven. <laughs> now, Saturday Night Live is good at comedy, not very good at theology. Is this what Jesus is saying? Work hard, somehow figure out how to get into heaven? You know, the language of eye and the needle is like in our cultural convention. It's like we would say, there's not a snowball's chance in a hot place. I've already pushed you this morning. I know, I'm like, whoa, who is this guy? He's really pushing it today. Saturday Night Live, Sky Mall. Sheesh. No wonder they're opening up new campuses, you know. 
But this is what he's doing. He's taking the largest mammal in the day in the smallest little hole, you can imagine a little needle, and he's saying, this is impossible. He is saying that to the disciples. There's no way human merit can ever, no matter how hard we try, ever get into the kingdom of God on our own. It is a gift. It is a new way. I am the new way to eternal life. (laughs) And the disciples are going, if this guy didn't get there, what about us? And Peter, yay, Peter. I mean, they all sort of have this antiphonal refrain, who can be saved? But Peter, Peter blurts out, doesn't he? He says, what, what, what about us? I and mean, we've done all this. We've followed you. Uh, give us some assurance. That's what I think he's saying. He's like, I, I just don't know how to handle this. See, we often hear the term self-made person. You know, we hear that, and, and again, we admire good achievement and hard work. I'm all for that. But Jesus would say there's no self-made person. Just self-deceived. Kenneth Bailey says this brilliantly. He says, with God, there is no pulling up of oneself by the bootstraps. The self-confidence of the self-made person crashes and dissolves like a mighty wave on a sandy shore when eternal life is at issue. It's gone. Here Jesus powerfully articulates why they're going to the cross. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is paving a new way. It is not based on human merit or conformity to commandments. It is his atoning shed blood on the cross. He is going to make a new way. It is a gift we receive. It's nothing we work for. This text, as I alluded to, is often abused and mistaught. And in this area of wealth and finances and money, there's all kinds of ways the gospel gets distorted. Let me highlight two of very common ones today. I could give you five. Let me give you two. First is the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel takes a text like this and says, this is normative, prescriptive for every follower of Jesus. The problem is the poverty gospel is unbiblical at its core. And it distorts this view, negating the goodness of material things in creation that God has given us to enjoy and to share. Vows of poverty are not a path to a super spirituality. They are often a dead end of legalism and self-righteousness. The poverty gospel is not the gospel. It's a distortion. On the other side, take the flip side, is the prosperity gospel. Very common today. People sell lots of books and fill stadiums with a distorted, if not heretical, gospel. The prosperity gospel in our material and affluent culture is very appealing It over-spiritualizes material prosperity. While the poverty gospel over-spiritualizes poverty, the prosperity gospel over-spiritualizes prosperity, financial material. The prosperity gospel equates wealth, material accumulation, financial success as evidences of faithful discipleship. The only problem is millions and millions of believers around the world, for them, faithfulness is their death, imprisonment, and suffering. 
path to follow Jesus may yield great financial blessings, but it may very well call us to a life of simplicity, sacrifice, and suffering. It is an abhorrent distortion of the gospel, and it is rampant today. The true gospel, Jesus says, is the gospel of grace. Do we see that here is the ultimate rich young ruler facing eye to eyeball with this other young rich ruler? Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who has given everything up to rescue us who are impossible to save without his work on the cross. Jesus left the most unimaginable riches and power with the Father. And he came to earth, he emptied himself, he died on the cross, he gave it all up so that you and I could have eternal life and the life we were created to live. He is the ultimate rich ruler who didn't walk away from you and me, but he walked to the cross. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, these words, Jesus was unimaginably rich, but he came to earth for our sakes and he became poor. The gospel of grace neither over-spiritualizes poverty or wealth, but it makes us possible to greatly enjoy and be radically generous in sharing what we have with others. Peter's world is rocked. They're all rocked. They're saying, we left everything, and Jesus affirms him. Do you see the end of this text? Jesus affirms that they left everything to follow him. And Jesus affirms, yes, Peter and disciples, you have given me your supreme allegiance your highest affection, and he affirms him. And he says, notice at the end of the text, he says, don't forget that the cost of discipleship is nothing compared to non-discipleship. That not only now, but in the future, you will have great blessing as you follow me. And notice how he ends this text. (laughs) He looks at his disciples who are just dumbfounded. Their world is turned upside down radically with these words. And he says to them, many who are first will be last. He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you like standing in lines? I have to tell you that if I think there is a foretaste of hell on earth, (laughs) it is at O'Hare Airport on an afternoon standing in security line. If you want to see your pastor at his low moment of the week. (laughs) Now, when I'm at the front of the line, it's no problem. But the back of the line? What is Jesus saying? (laughs) Jesus is saying that many people that you meet every day at school, at work, people that have it all together, straight A's, Great wealth, great looks, great positions, great careers, great everything, perfect families. Many people who are viewed as having it all really don't have anything at all. They seem like they're at the front of the line in this world, but actually they're going to be in the last. And here we have Jesus' brilliance on display. We have a paradox dripping with irony. This idea of the great reversal 
that the gospel brings. It turns our world upside down. That you and I can wrongly think we have it all and have nothing at all. We can be holding on too tightly, and that can mean losing out completely. Jesus gives us this sobering reminder at the end. And I don't think it'd be right for us to just sort of close the message like this. I think Mark has something else up his literary sleeve, as Jesus does, and he wants us to look at our own life, not the person sitting next to us. And I think he wants us to reflect for a moment. And I'd like to raise three questions for your reflection. The first question is, am I following Jesus wholeheartedly? I didn't say perfectly, wholeheartedly. Wherever you are this morning, have you embraced the gospel? Are you trying to work your way there, impress him through all kinds of things, religion or non-religion? Or do you realize that it is a gift that Jesus made possible on the cross? Have you received Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Where is your supreme allegiance? Where is your undivided loyalty? Where is your highest affection? Be honest. Jesus knows that already. He knows your heart. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Jesus will have no divided allegiance. He will either have all of us or he will not have us at all. The Holy Scriptures say he is jealous in his love. Discipleship, dear friends, is not an add-on to our life. It is our life. The Apostle Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Are you following wholeheartedly? Secondly, am I holding things loosely? Am I holding on too tightly? Am I loving my family too much, my children, my grandchildren, my spouse, my close friends at school? My possessions, my home, my lake home, my 401K, my investments, my business, and you add on. Albert Schweitzer said, if you have something you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. Paul writes these words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Let me read it. As for the rich in this present age, and put yourself there because compared to the world, everyone here is rich, super rich compared to the globe. That's you and me. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Are you following Jesus wholeheartedly? Are you holding all things loosely? And third, are you giving generously? You are created to be a generous person. You are made in God's image of the most generous God imaginable. In your time, talent, and treasure. This is why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And one of the great blessings of a generous life in the area of money and wealth and investments, it is one of the most marvelous antidotes to the peril of greed and the heart idol of wealth. Jesus saw this in this young man. 
and gave him the prescription as a great physician. Give it up or it will destroy you. If you're resting, holding on tightly to your possessions, your investment portfolio, your checkbook, perhaps one of the best things you can do is to give a bunch of it away and to do it soon and do it wisely. For some of us this morning, it may be beginning to give to our church as a generous, regular giver. It may be tithing when you have not been obedient to tithe. It may be give much larger area of your income and your wealth. I don't know what God's saying to you. But we are called to be generous. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries, amusements, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are just too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities expend, expenditure excludes them. At Wheaton College, he was a young man who had it all. Brilliant, extraordinary wrestler. Yet he felt called by God to serve God in another place on the globe. Jim Elliott, in following his specific call for his life, was martyred for the sake of the gospel. When they opened up his journal from Wheaton College, Jim Elliott, as a young man, a rich young man, had penned these words. He is no fool to give up when he cannot keep, to gain when he cannot lose. Jesus calls you and me not to a life of endless possessions, but a life of extraordinary treasure. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, simply ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your particular heart, your situation this morning. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? And will you be obedient today and this week to take the steps necessary to follow Christ fully? Jesus offers you the life you were designed to live. He died on the cross, made it possible for you to live it. And he invites you to be his apprentice. Will you follow him fully? May Jesus be praised.